You could turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel 9. 1 Samuel chapter 9. Last week we saw the people of Israel put their trust in man and in princes and cry out for a king like the nations. And this week we see what it looks like for God to answer that request. 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 through 27. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, son of Bekorath, son of Aphiah, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. He had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, Take one of the young men with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha, but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they did not find them there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But he said to him, Behold, there is a man of the city, the man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. And Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For the bread in our sacks is gone, and there is no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here, I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer, for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. And Saul said to the ser- his servant, Well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat till he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, The Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found." And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel? And is not my clan the humblest of the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why then have you spoken to me in this way? Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, Bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, Put it aside. So the cook took up the leg and what was on it and set them before Saul. And Samuel said, See what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof. And he lay down to sleep. 
Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Up, that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose, and both he and Samuel went out into the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while, that I may make known to you the word of God. Let's pray. Father, I come before you now asking that you would take your word, that you would apply it to our hearts. Lord, that we would see the wisdom and the way you decide to save your people, that we would see your kindness, that we would see your justice. Lord, I pray that this word would be practical to our lives, that you might change us to be more like you in light of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about 15 and a half years ago, May 5th, 2000, I woke up in Sioux Falls, shared a house with my brother and a couple friends right next to the University of Sioux Falls campus. And I probably had a couple classes that morning. I don't remember. But what I know happened that day is after my classes, I got in my Ford Taurus and drove back home to Watertown. Every weekend, I'd pretty much go home. I was kind of a homebody. There's one week before school's out. I can't wait for summer. So this is the weekend before summer. And if anyone, if you know me, I don't like being alone. I always like having something to do. So I was lining up uh, something to do with my friends that night. I remember calling one of my friends, Marshall, and, and uh, got a hold of him and called Corey, and they were going to be in town, and I was excited because I was going to have something to do on this Friday night. I was a sophomore in college. It was a normal Friday at that stage of my life. As I called Marshall and said, what should we do? He said, I heard there's a wedding dance at the Ramcota. I guess in Watertown with not much to do. We were kind of wedding crashers. There was, I'm not the best dancer in the world, so it wouldn't have been my first choice, but that's what my buddies wanted to do. You know, let kind of the family and of the groom and the bride start to leave and then the locals show up to the wedding dance. So we show up at the Ramcota and uh, I don't know, it's like any other wedding dance. I'm not enjoying it that much, but my buddy's here. Well, there's, there's a wedding dance in the basement too. That one sounds like it's more happening than up here. So we go down into the basement of the Ramcota at Watertown. And little did I know that when I walked down those stairs, my life was going to change forever. Because as I walked down the stairs, there's this little dance floor, and I saw the most beautiful woman I'd ever seen. You can, you've guessed it, it's Laura. She's dancing with about three guys. <laughs> and this is Watertown, South Dakota, and I feel like I know every pretty girl about my age in Watertown. And I'm with a friend of mine from uh, Florence who I played football with there, and I said, do you know who that girl is over there dancing? And he says, yeah, why? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I kind of think she's cute. <laughs> and uh, I said, do you know if she's a Christian? And he says, I, didn't, I don't know if my buddy was a Christian. 
But he says, oh yeah, she's into all that stuff big time. So that's all I needed to hear. I didn't care that there was three guys there. So I said, you got to introduce me. And he's kind of like, no. I'm like, why do you like her? And he's like, kind (laughs) of. I'm like, well, you better do something because if you don't, I'm going to. He ended up uh, introducing me to Laura. I kind of had a smooth way of telling her that I was leading a college Bible study, which I was. I had an internship at a church in Watertown that summer. And I wanted to get her number so I could invite her and let her know when the Bible study was. And the rest is history. We've been married now for 13 years. I have four little blonde-haired girls. Little did I know on May 5th, when I woke up in Sioux Falls, what that day had in store in the providence of God for my life. Well, it's not that much different for Saul nearly 3,000 years ago. His dad's name is Kish. They're wealthy. They have livestock. They wake up one morning on the farm. The donkeys have ran off. And Kish asks Saul, tells him, grab the hired hand and go look for the donkeys. What a normal thing in Saul's life. What a normal day for the way it could start out. What the text tells us about Saul is he's a handsome man. That he's taller than everyone in Israel from the shoulders up. That means that the top of everyone else's head comes to his shoulders. He's a tall, nice-looking young man from the tribe of Benjamin, the least of the tribes of Israel. And so... He grabs the hired hand and they go looking for the donkeys. After they traveled a long ways through the hill country of Ephraim, through the all those places, four different places. I'm glad you read Scripture today, Scott, not me. (laughs) All you need to know is they traveled through the hill countries of Ephraim looking for the donkeys to no avail. And they came to Zuf. And it's there Saul said, let's call off the search. Dad's going to be worrying. He's going to worry more about me and you than he is the donkeys. So he says, let's go. And the hired hand says, wait a minute. There's a prophet that lives here. We could go to him and maybe he could tell us where the donkeys are. And Saul seems a little skeptical. He says, well, we don't even have any more bread in our bag. It looks like they ate their bread. What are we going to give? What are we going to pay the prophet to tell us where our donkeys are? And lo and behold, the servant has a quarter of a shekel of silver in his bag, convinces Saul, let's go. So on this ordinary day, with a pretty ordinary plan, they're walking into town and out come some young women on their ordinary day going to get water, which they probably did every day. And as they saw the women, they said, Is the prophet here? And they said, yes, if you hurry into town, he's going to be coming. There's a sacrifice on the high place. So if you hurry, you might be able to meet him. And then after verse 14 there, you have an interruption. And it's an interruption because verse 14 and verse 18 go perfectly together. If you pluck out those three verses in the middle, the special information, the narrative flows on. But this interruption is 
important for us understanding the story, even though in our lives we usually don't get this three verses describing what's going on. But let's look at the interruption. Look at verse 15. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, tomorrow about this time I'll send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines. For I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. Verse 16, so important. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So just, we get this special information, but the story picks up again in verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, tell me, where's the house of the seer? And Samuel says, I am he. I'm the one you're looking for. He says, go up to the high place in front of me, then we'll eat. Then you'll eat with me. In the morning, I'll let you go. And don't freak out about the donkeys. I love the providence of God here. The prophet says, forget the donkeys. Go up there. I'm going to feed you. That's good. They don't even have bread anymore. Go up on the high place. You're going to eat with me. I'll send you on in the morning. Don't worry about the donkeys. They've been found. And so they go up to the high place. And afterwards, there's a meal for 30 of probably the most important people in Israel. And they put Saul, Samuel puts Saul at the head of the table with his hired hand. And then he tells the cook, bring the special portion, the leg that's probably the portion that's set aside for the priest. Bring that and give it to Samuel. I mean to Saul so he could eat. And then after this, Saul says, see what was kept is set before you. Eat because it was kept for you until the appointed hour that you might eat with the guests. And so in the story, we're like, so what's the big deal here? Why the special treatment? Why? Well, we know because of this special information we have in verses 15 through 17. And it's interesting in verses 21 through 24, Samuel says to Saul, he says, Who gets the best of all that's in Israel? Same way of, here's the way he says in verse 20, For whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Who should get the best in Israel, Saul? Is it not you? Saul says, what are you talking about? Why should I get the best of all that's in Israel? I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. Not only that, that's the least of the tribes, but my clan inside that tribe is the least of the tribe of Benjamin. Why should I get the best? And so they eat. Saul or Samuel already has a bed ready for Saul. Remember, in the morning, Saul is looking for donkeys. And God is already preparing a place for him to sleep that night. And we just see the providence of God in this normal, everyday life and God is doing something amazing. 
Saul's beginning to figure it out. We're not going to get to chapter 10 this week. We're not going to finish the story this week. But as I read this, how the story ends then is he wakes up in the morning. Samuel takes Saul, walks out into the street with him, walks him to the outskirts of town, says, have your servant pass by. I need to tell you the word from the Lord. That's where this chapter ends. And I was struggling this week trying to figure out two main things. I just felt the tension of the providence of God and the ordinary, everyday life of man. Specifically, what Saul is doing. He's doing exactly what he wants to do. God is doing what He wants to do. And all throughout the Scripture, what do we have? Tensions. One tension after another. And the reason why I titled the message what I titled it, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of the knowledge of God, is if we were going to unfold history, we would not unfold it in such an amazing way, and we would not have all these tensions. I mean, there's tensions everywhere in the Bible. Just let me give you a couple examples here. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And Jesus also said, take up your cross and follow me. So which is it, Jesus? Are you telling me to come get rest or to come take up my cross? And the answer is yes. And in the wisdom of God, they're both absolutely true. Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those who mourn. And the Holy Spirit tells us through Paul, rejoice always. Again, I say rejoice. So what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to mourn for happier? Those who mourn? Am I supposed to rejoice? Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So which is it? It's both. And here we see tension in the providence of God and our choices in what we do every day. Here's the question I asked when I read this. So does God work in the little things? Doesn't it just stand out on the page? All these ordinary things are working a bigger plan. We know because in chapter 8, God said, give them what they want. They want a king. So we know to kind of look at this ordinary day with these glasses on, expecting Saul to become king. And so as we look at it, we, we see God working. But my question is, is, does He only do this when He's doing big things? See, that's what I really need to know because I'm not going to be king in Israel. And I'm probably not going to be anything all that special in this world. But what I want to know is, when I wake up in the morning to brush my teeth and go through my ordinary mundane life every day, is God working in the same way as He is in Saul's life? Or is this just special occasion? Well, I'm here to tell you that it's not only on special occasions. I mean, we know the Lord works with kings. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever He wills. All the leaders in the world, their hearts are like water in the hands of God. 
He turns them as He wills. God's involved in the kings. With kings, Daniel 2.21, He changes times and seasons. He removes kings. He sets up kings. Yes, He's involved in those areas of life as we're seeing in our text. But Proverbs 16.9 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. See, he's not talking about kings here. He's talking about you. You get up in the morning and you plan your day. And the Lord determines your steps. Now, some of you might say, I can't handle that. I'm picking one or the other. Well, you can pick one or the other, but you can't have the Bible because these tensions are everywhere. Proverbs 20.24 A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can a man understand his way? Proverbs 19.21 Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God is a God of purpose and providence. Know this. You are being deceived when you think your normal, mundane life does not matter. You're being deceived. That's not what Scripture says. God is a God of purpose. On your most normal day, Jesus in Matthew 10.29 taught, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father? But even the hairs on your head are all numbered? Fear not, therefore. You are more of more value than many sparrows. There's not one sparrow that dies in this universe that the Lord does not know about, that the Lord did not ordain. Even the most meaningless parts of your life, how many hairs are on your head, God knows. And Jesus is saying, don't you know how I care for you? How I care about your life? Man does not judge life that way. We live for the important days. For the accolades, the successes. The things that really matter that bring attention. But God cares about your most normal day. And God is working. Yes, May 5th was a special day, but that was just as an example. I can look back and see what God's doing. I was given, in a sense, through time, I was able to zoom back and see what He's doing. Most of the time we can't. Most of the time we don't get verses 15 through 17. Letting us know how we're going in the plan and providence of God. In 2 Timothy 3.16, we read, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. God's Word is given to you so that every work you do, you can be equipped for. Colossians 3.22, Paul writing to the bondservants or the slaves, says this, Obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with the sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Whatever you do. He says, don't work to be seen. I'm going to submit a thought to you that I think is true. It is easier to fulfill your purpose on the mundane 
day, days of your life than any other day. You see, what happens to Saul? This is a big thing that's happening, but he starts to get the praise of man. He starts to trust in himself. Paul just told the slaves, he says, don't do your work to be seen by man. Then you're going to sit there and collect in the praise of man, but you serve your master as you're serving the Lord. Jesus said, don't go pray in public, pray in secret. Why? You see, all of us want to be seen for what we do. That's built into our hearts. And that's okay. But Jesus wants us to be seen by God, not by people. Not to get the credit of man. One of the beauties of your normal life is you get to fulfill your call on your life which is to worship and glory in God with no one watching. Only God knows. Only God knows. And He's involved in every little moment. 99% of your life is mundane. And you need to know that the 99% of your life that's most important is the mundane. You're not going to make very many important decisions in your life. You might make one or two, three or four, but your life consists of normal. Imagine this for a moment. Imagine if you're a child. Do children sit out there and would they think this thought? I hope my parents make a couple great moves in life that gains them a lot of attention and approval by man. I don't really care what they do the rest of the time. Is any child going to think that? No. What does a child care about? A child wants a mom and dad that every day in the normal monotonous, might seem like meaningless, has a mom and a dad who loves them and loves the Lord and is faithful. That's what every child wants at their heart. And then so easily we're drawn aside to, I'm not doing anything. I'm not important. I look at all these important people. So one point I want you to take from this because it's the question. I mean, the providence of God is all over this. I'm just asking the question. Does this have anything to do with me? Or is this just for kings and important people? So charge number one, live as one who knows God guides us through every mundane step. He's involved in every one of them. Secondly, the second tension I felt here, and it's just driving me crazy. So I'm reading, I'm trying to figure out the flow of 1 Samuel, and I'm like, God, are you schizophrenic? What are you doing? In chapter 8, you're rebuking Israel for wanting to king like the nations. Then in chapter 9, they're not picking the tallest one. You're picking the tallest one. You're organizing the good-looking one, the, the one people would choose. And you're picking him to save them from their enemies. So what is it? Are you upset with them? What do you expect from chapter 8? After chapter 8, you expect him to say, fine, you pick. And the people look at Saul and say, he's the best-looking. Let's pick him. And then God says, now watch this evil king disappoint you. That's not what the text says. You can understand the tension I'm feeling? Then you get done with chapter 9 and part of chapter 10, and all of a sudden, God turns again. He's talking about judgment through Samuel for them wanting a king like the nations. Then the king saves them again. 
through the power of God. And so I'm sitting here and I'm like, I'm going to be preaching two opposite sermons every Sunday. God wanted Saul to be king to save them from the nations. And the next, well, you shouldn't ask for a king from the nations. So you feeling my pain? Well, I got help from a guy named Ralph Dale Davis, a commentator. He just laid this out and I put it in your notes so hopefully you can see it. What you have up through chapter 14 is you have Israel coming together, assembling. Then you have action taking place. War and victory. And then gathering them together. And then action. Gathering them together. Action. This is what we have in the coming chapters in front of us. And when the they gather together for assembly, God is speaking through Samuel saying, why are you putting your hope in a king like the nations? That's wicked and that's evil. You see, this would be like the parent. I mean, here's how I think. That's like the parent telling the kid, don't do this. This is bad. And then they do it and then you reward them. That's what it feels like. Well, which is it, God? Are you telling us what's right and what we should do? And then, are you giving mercy? Are you threatening? Are you giving mercy? And if you read the whole Testament, this is what you're going to find over and over again. Was God saving Israel? Or is He judging Israel? Let me give you a couple examples. So the first assembly, in verse 4 of chapter 8, it says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. And then a few verses ahead in verse 7 we read, And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. So, at the assembly, I say God is anti-monarchy. So it seems like, doesn't it? Then I go to chapter 9, verse 16. Tomorrow about this time, I'll send you a man from the land of Benjamin. You shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He should save my people from the hand of the Philistines. You wanted a king? I'll give you a king to save you from your enemies. And when you wanted the king, you wanted him in, replace, in, in place of me. And then we get the assembly again in verse 17 of chapter 10. Now Samuel called all the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. And then verse 19 he says, But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. You have said to Him, Set a king over us. Shame on you for wanting a king over you rather than God. Then you get to chapter 11, verse 13. Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel as Saul leads Israel to victory. God says, this is evil what you're doing and I'm going to bless you. You feeling it? You seeing it? Third assembly, 1 Samuel 12.1. And Samuel said to all of Israel, Behold, so you have the assembly, I've obeyed your voice and all that you have said to me and I've made a king over you. And then you move down to verse 17, partway through that verse. And you shall know and see your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourself a king. And then in 1 Samuel 14.23, we see Jonathan, Saul's son, lead Israel to victory. Tension. This is what's right. You don't do it. And then I bless you anyway. Yes, there's 
judgment there. So as I'm going through this, it was just helpful for someone to say, look at the pattern. And as I started thinking about it, this is the pattern throughout the whole Old Testament. So what do we do? What does the Bible give us with this tension? I want you to look at 1 Samuel 12.20. You'll get to see this live side by side. And we'll begin to see a glimpse to our answer, I think. First Samuel 12.20 And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid that you have done all this evil. That's an interesting sentence. Do not be afraid that you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. You've done all this evil I've showed you, but don't be afraid. But God's God. Why wouldn't you be afraid? Don't turn from Him, Samuel says. He says, don't turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great namesake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. You're evil, but it's pleased God to make you a people for Himself. That's what he's saying. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Well, back in verse 20, you said, do not fear, even though I've done all this evil. And now you're telling me to fear the Lord. (laughs) But what you do see here is you see Samuel saying, what are you going to do? You know you're evil. Are you going to turn after empty things? What is going to deliver you? He's saying, you can't leave Yahweh. Yahweh is your only hope. And the verse came to my mind as I'm starting to kind of work through this stuff. What I titled the sermon. Oh, the, it's Romans 11, 33. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. We wouldn't do it like God does it. And I went there, and you know what the context is? of that passage. It's chapter 11 in the book of Romans when God is telling the Gentiles Israel was unfaithful, so I broke that branch off and I grafted you in. Though you were ungodly, I grafted you in. Listen to this. As regards to the Gospel, they being Israel are enemies for your sake. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. That is weird. You were disobedient and you received mercy. That's weird. And you received mercy because of their disobedience. You feeling the tension? You receive mercy because of disobedience. And then he says, so they too have been disobedient in order that by mercy shown to you, they may also now have mercy. Israel's been disobedient so that they will see mercy given to the Gentiles and that they will now get mercy. What in the world is God doing? Helping sinners. Blessing them in their disobedience. And then He says, 
For God is consigned to all disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? You get to the New Testament, you start to see the tension. The tension remains, but you start to get answers to how it can be. Listen to Paul, 1 Timothy 1.12. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because... What should it say there, you think? I used to do this stuff. I was a blasphemer. I was insolent. But I received mercy because... Here's what Paul says. I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed with me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He's saying, when I was a sinner, God showed me mercy and gave me faith and love. That is shocking. And then he says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason. Here's another reason why you receive mercy. That in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. One of the reasons He showed mercy to me is so that He could show everyone else, I save sinners. I bless sinners. There was no point in Israel's life that their hearts were perfect before the Lord, loving the Lord. Mercy, 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 all the way through. Even when their enemies are destroying them because of their sins. The mercy of God. And the tension is this. Well, we may have a merciful God, but does He give a rip about sin? Does He even care? And I know we've been through this a hundred times, but as long as this pulpit stands at Sovereign Grace Church, there's one main message that comes from this pulpit. It's the cross. The cross is the place where God's holiness and righteousness, you must be perfect and sinless because I'm perfect and sinless. And mercy meet. They cross at the cross. God can say to you, I care about sin. So much so my son is bleeding on the cross. And I care so much about mercy that my son is bleeding on the cross. So this drumbeat through the whole Testament God's holiness, but He gives them mercy, but they're not even that good. How can this be? All promises get their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Crucified. There is one message of the Christian church. Jesus Christ crucified. There is one hope for a dark and lost world full of sinners. They don't need a bunch of people who pretend like they're better than they really are. They need people that admit their brokenness. They admit their striving for holiness, but they point them to the One who died for them and for their sins. So that as God is raising up Saul, whom we know does not remain faithful to God, He raises him up with mercy for Israel. When people don't know what's going on, God is working salvation for Israel. My prayer is that no one here would believe that they're okay 
outside of Jesus Christ. It's absolute foolishness. When Jesus Christ became a man, took on flesh, that's what we're celebrating at Christmas time. And I can't remember the verse in that song, but it basically said, all mankind basically better bow down and give homage as God lowers Himself so much that He would take on flesh and suffer greater than any man. It is right to say, I give the invitation for you to receive Jesus. Scripture speaks like that. We need to receive Him. And it's also right to say that you must be obedient to the Gospel. It's right for the preacher to say, you ought to believe. You must believe. He's worthy of your belief. He created you and He died for you. So I give you both. Come find mercy and bow down before the King of kings and Lord of lords. Father, You are so amazing. Our finite minds will never wrap our mind around the fullness of the mystery of the grace of God and the cross of Christ. Lord, we will never know, at least this side of heaven, what every day means in the providence of God. But Lord, we know that every moment matters. That if we're created to worship You, we can worship You maybe even better in the mundane days of our life. We don't need an audience. We don't need people to tell us good job. Lord, let us wake up with the joy of having an opportunity to worship You, our great Savior. You're our Father. You love us. Lord, we know that if You love the sparrows, You love us. Lord, I pray that there wouldn't be one sinner here that in their rebellion and love for sin would keep them from coming to the foot of the cross for mercy. Anyone here that's trying to find hope in emptiness, in sin, Lord, I pray they would come to You. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.